And so we come now uh, to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. And let's call on the Lord together before we open God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we just sung to you a moment ago, we don't have anywhere else to go, Lord, but to you. Our souls have tasted and seen that you are good, that you have the words of eternal life, and we can't go anywhere else, Lord, for the good of our souls but to you, God. And so we come to you as our Father in heaven, Lord, and we ask, Lord, that you would be faithful to us as your adopted children through the gospel because of Jesus, because of Christ. Lord, we ask for mercy today. Lord, you tell us in your word that you're a good father. That when your children ask, when your children ask you for a fish, you don't give a serpent. Lord, you say, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so, Lord, we ask for the Holy Spirit today. Lord, we ask for your work in the midst of your church. Be good to us, Lord. God, feed us and provide for us as your children provide for our souls. God, I pray for our brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray for assurance of salvation, Lord, in the hearts of your people all across this room as we celebrated that supper just a moment ago. Lord, I pray that you would use it to accomplish your purpose in our heart, that you would strengthen assurance, that you would root us deeply in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, I pray that as we sang to you a moment ago, Lord, that you strengthened our souls that you encouraged us, Lord. Lord, you gave us a chance to fulfill the end for which we were created, to give you praise and honor and glory. And as we come to your word now, Lord, we ask that you would feed our souls, that you would make your word effective in our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. And a little abnormal for Grace Community Church, we're going we're gonna to cover one verse this morning. Um, not one chapter, but one verse of the Bible. And so let's read it together. God's Word, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. This is, this is the words of Jesus. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And this is God's word to this local church this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. I want to make a a few remarks before we dig into this passage together. I want to remind us that as we're coming through the Gospel of Matthew, and more specifically, we've been coming through the Sermon on the Mount in the last couple of months, we come to a new section in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. Now the theme is the same. The theme of the, of the Sermon on the Mount is the righteousness of the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking about this new kingdom that has broken into this age. And he's talking about the righteousness of this kingdom. The righteousness of his kingdom. And he's contrasting it to the righteousness of the religious leaders of his day. And so what we saw Jesus do in the last chapter, Matthew chapter 5, is he contrasted uh, the teaching of the Pharisees to his teaching. And you heard... Uh, many examples of this in chapter 5. You have heard it said of old, but Jesus says, but I say to you. And he's telling us that the righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven is a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Now the Pharisees are still in view. The righteousness of the kingdom is still in view, but the subject has changed. We're no longer talking about religious teaching. 
In Matthew chapter 6, we begin to talk about the religious practices that Jesus demands of his followers, the righteousness of his kingdom. Jesus warns against the, the practices of piety of the Pharisees, who three times in, in Matthew 6, he calls the hypocrites. And so Jesus, he says in Matthew 5, don't teach like them. And don't, don't read the Bible like they do. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't live like them. They're hypocrites. And verse 1 is the introduction to this new section. We're coming to uh, this, this shift. And verse 1 introduces this principle of piety, of true religion, of sincerity in seeking God the Father. And then in verses uh, two, through nine, th- 2 through 18, this principle is going to be applied in three different ways. This is what it means to truly seek God. And then Jesus says in verse 2, when you give, he puts his finger on our piety, our giving, our generosity. He says, don't do it like the hypocrites. And then you come to verse 5, he says, when you pray. He touches our prayer life and he says, don't do it like the hypocrites. Again, we come to verse 16, he says, when you fast, and again, Jesus says, don't do it like the hypocrites. The righteousness that he calls us to is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so we have before us the subject of piety, the, 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 the religious fear of God lived out. And Jesus assumes that Christians are are going to live a life of piety. He says, not if you give, not if you pray, not if you fast. He says, when you do it, don't do it like the hypocrites. And so he demands that something be different in Christians when we begin to seek and to serve God. And you could summarize the differences under two headings. He calls us to a different manner of serving God and a different motive in serving God. So over and over again in this section, we're going to see the secret contrasted to the public. Okay, The secret versus the public. And and what the hypocrites do is they don't have a secret life of piety. They just live before men and they seek and serve God when somebody's looking, but they don't seek and serve God in Secret. That's the manner. He calls us to a different standard. But also the motive. Jesus puts his finger on the motive of why are you doing these things? And he tells us there are two options here, that we will either seek the praise of God or men. And the hypocrites, they live for the praise of men. They, They do these things in order to be seen and praised by men. And so this is where we're going to be in the next several weeks as a local church. We're going to be camping in uh, this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to start this morning, I want to spend a good amount of time on that very first word that Jesus says in verse 1. He says, beware. That that word can also be translated, uh, be careful or pay attention. And I want to use that one word as a reminder to us this morning. This is just a general reminder to the people of God that a Christian is supposed to be living carefully. We are supposed, we're the only ones on planet earth. We're supposed to be morally and spiritually awake, not morally and spiritually asleep. We're supposed to be paying attention. We're supposed to be careful. We're supposed to be alert, aware. We're supposed to be living a calculated, purposeful, intentional life. It's not just Christians aren't just those who wake up and let life happen every day. We're those who are living intentionally in God's world for God's glory. And so I want to give you just a a smattering. I don't even know what that word means. A smattering of verses Um, from God's Word that says this in all kinds of ways. And I want you to receive this this morning as just a general reminder that we're supposed to be awake. We're supposed to be careful in how we're living. Said a lot of different ways in Scripture, 
the prophet Haggai, in Haggai chapter 1, verse 7, we have this simple phrase. He says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Now I want you to think about how general that call is. Your ways are your life. It's how you live in this world. And the prophet of God says, consider it. Consider how you're living. Consider your ways. Now that's obviously the opposite of the person who never takes inventory of how they're living. They never examine their life. The Bible says, consider how you're living. Consider your ways. It's said another way in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26, and I love this phrase. He says, ponder the path of your feet. And so we have this word picture of the Christian life as a journey along a path, to use the language of Pilgrim's Progress, through the wilderness of this world, we are traveling towards the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. Well, the Bible tells us is that as we're journeying down this path, we're supposed to be looking down and pondering how it goes with our feet. Ponder the path of your feet. You're supposed to know how it's going with your soul. You're supposed to know how it's going in your life, that you're calculated. This thing is intentional. It's not haphazard living or haphazard walking through life. Ponder the path of your feet. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says it as simple as it can be said. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Christians are those who examine themselves. We open up our life to the light of God's Word. We stick our life. We're in this constant cycle of laying our life beside God's commandments in His Word and asking, how's it going with my soul? Examining my life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Paul says, look carefully how you walk. Look carefully how you walk. Christians are supposed to be able to give an account for why they're doing what they're doing. Why are you doing that? Why are you making these decisions? You're supposed to be looking carefully how you're walking through this world. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. And so Peter throws this, this, this piece in here that there's dangers along the way. As we're walking through the wilderness of this world, there are dangers. And we got to wake up and be sober-minded and be watchful. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says, The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. And so if you're a Christian, if you are honest with yourself, and you are walking through this world as a sleepy Christian. You are not giving the appropriate attention to uh, living for the glory of God. The Bible says that the hour for you to wake up, to wake up from that slumber is right now. The hour has come to wake from sleep. Sleep no longer. Sleep no longer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6 says this, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So Christians aren't supposed to sleep like other people sleep. Now it's obvious that we're not talking about physical sleep here, right? The apostle is not telling us that other people need sleep. Christians are, you know, superhumans. We don't need sleep anymore. That's obviously not what he's talking about. He's talking about a spiritual sleepiness, a moral sleepiness that you're not wide awake. You're not watching over your life. You're just letting stuff happen. You're not living carefully. And so here in Matthew 6, Jesus tells us, pay attention. You're supposed to be paying attention to how you live. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says it this way. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, listen, lest we drift. And that's the consequences to an unexamined life, an uncareful life. As the Bible tells you, you're going to drift. You're not going to walk the straight and narrow path, the narrow way. If you're careless, you're going to drift. We must pay much closer attention. To what we have heard. And so in all kinds of ways, the Bible describes 
this carefulness, this disposition of, of, of watchfulness that's supposed to govern the life of every Christian. We're supposed to be awake. We're not supposed to be asleep. The Puritans called this the spiritual discipline of watchfulness. And they exhorted one another, the Puritans exhorted one another to practice uh, watching over your life, living carefully, taking inventory of how goes it with your soul, how are you doing in your walk with Jesus Christ. Practice watchfulness. They thought of it as a spiritual discipline. And really it's a discipline that's underneath so many other spiritual disciplines that we ought to be watchful in everything in our prayers we ought to be watchful in our bible reading we ought to be watchful we're supposed to be careful in the way that you're hearing preaching right now you're supposed to be careful how you're hearing the word of god is supposed to govern everything watchfulness it's a discipline that needs to be recovered in our day and so I want to remind you this morning that we cannot afford to be sleepy Christians. We are expected by Jesus Christ to live in a state of spiritual alertness, watching over our lives, and above all, watching over our hearts. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the springs of life. I think our projector is about to explode. Yeah, let's unplug that thing. I'm just saying. All right, we are called to watchfulness. And more than anything else, we watch over our hearts. Why? Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And so I want to remind you this morning, there's something uh, about you that affects everything else about you. That's your heart. And you need to watch over it. And you need to watch over it carefully with the help of the Spirit of God. It's been said that the biggest battle in conversion is winning our hearts for God. I mean, that's how bad it was that we had to have heart surgery. You had to have the heart of stone taken out and the new heart implanted in us. That was the biggest battle in conversion. But the biggest battle in sanctification is keeping our hearts for God. Sanctification is heart work. And there's a call here for carefulness. To carefully watch over our hearts. Why? Why should we do this? Because brothers and sisters, not everyone who starts well finishes well. There are those who drift. There are those who fall away. Or you could say it like this. Why should we watch over our hearts and our lives? Because there are Delilah sins scattered along our path that desire to get close to us and seduce us, like, like Delilah seduced Samson, and take our strength away from us and lead us away captive. We should watch over our hearts because not everyone who starts well finishes well. We should beware. We should be careful. And Jesus focuses our attention on one specific hazard along the path in this text. And here's how he says it in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So we're supposed to be awakened to this danger that Jesus Christ is pointing out to us. Don't be like them. Don't do like they do. Don't live like they live. And so what we have here is, and the Bible does this so often, is things are reduced down to two different kinds of people, two different ways to live. And Jesus tells us here that there's two different ways to live. You can live manward. You can live manward for the, for the praise of man. That's one way to live. And then the other way to live is you can live Godward for the glory and praise 
of God. And Jesus indicts the, 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 the hypocritical Pharisees as those who are living manward. They're living to be seen by men. What does that mean? It means that they appear to be servants of God in public, but they're actually not servants of God in secret. They appear to be something that they're actually not. That's what a hypocrite means. They're like uh, a, a, an actor on a stage playing a role. They have the appearance, but not the substance of righteousness. Later in the Gospels, Jesus calls these men, he says, you are whitewashed tombs. And I want you to think about that metaphor, okay, that word picture. He says, you are dead, you are a tomb. You, are, you, are, you have death on the inside. But he says, you're whitewashed. You're like a tomb with a shiny coat of paint on the outside. You're dead on the inside, but you look nice and pretty and white on the outside. This is the hypocritical life of the religious Pharisees. Really similar is the description of uh, the apostate uh, church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. He says this, Jesus says this, he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. On the inside, you're dead. There are other people who think you're alive. You only have the appearance of life. This is the way of hypocrisy. And Jesus teaches us that these men live for the praise of men. They do their works to be seen by others. And he also tells us the tool that they use to get the praise of men is the spiritual disciplines. Jesus calls it in verse 1, when you practice your righteousness before men to be seen by men. And so we have... Uh, these hypocrites that live for the praise of men and not for the praise of God. The Father's gaze in the secret place is not enough. They need the praise of men. And what Jesus does here is he draws this line. We've seen it so many times in the Sermon on the Mount. The contrast between the church and the world. And Christians are not like that. They must not be like that. And they are not like that. Christ's followers seek and serve the Father in secret. And they live for God's glory and not for the praise of men. And true religion has always been this way. True piety. A true fear of the Lord. Listen to how it said in Romans chapter 2, verse 29. Paul says, A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Two ways to live. Godward or manward. We have a drastic contrast between the church and the world. And yet I want to dial in even deeper here. Christians are different from the world. And yet... Jesus thinks it necessary to warn Christians here to beware, to, to be alert, to pay careful attention. And so as followers of Jesus, Jesus would have us on the lookout for this same principle at work in our hearts. This desire to be known, a desire to get credit, a desire to get attention, a desire to be well thought of, a desire to get honor and praise from men. And we need to know this about our hearts. Jesus says, beware, wake up to it. The impulse to talk about ourselves, to publish our righteousness, as though our Father seeing us in secret were not enough. We must also have the praise of men. And specifically, just to make it as specific as we can possibly get it this morning, Jesus would call us to watchfulness over how we practice our righteousness, our piety, our spiritual disciplines. Now, I want to go through 
several examples of this, give lots of circumstances, but I want to mention this before we do that. That I, I believe that sometimes Jesus' teaching here is evaded by a common explanation. It's evaded. It doesn't land with a full force. And the explanation is this. As long as my motives are fine, I can talk about my righteousness. In other words, as long as I'm not trying to get the praise of men, I can talk about my righteousness. And no doubt, motives are the most important thing in this passage. But here's my pushback, and here's what I want you to notice. That this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not just say, watch your motive, watch your motive, watch your motive. He doesn't just do that. He does do that. Three different times, Jesus says, go into secret. Go into secret. Go into the secret place. Three different times Jesus tells us to intentionally obscure righteousness in our life so our Father can see it in secret. Three times He tells us God will see it there. He will see it there. And He will reward you. And so it's not just the motive that Jesus is addressing in this passage. It is also the manner by which we practice our righteousness. So I want us to be warned by this, I want us to be aware and turn away from our desires to make sure other people know just how godly we really are. we got to turn away from this stuff. This is not the way of Jesus Christ. He says, beware of this. Now, this can be done in blatant ways and subtle ways. Okay, And I mean extremely blatant. Next week we'll, we'll dig into this more. But we're told that the Pharisees, when they gave, they, it's like they struck up the marching band in, in the Sunday morning gathering. And the trumpets, is, when, when you give, you sound the trumpets. Trumpets started playing before the, the, the coins were dropped in, in the pot. I mean, there's blatant ways that we can call attention to ourselves that are wrong. And certainly Jesus is calling us away from that. Certainly. But this can also be done in subtle ways. And brothers and sisters, I want us to feel this warning of subtle ways that our sinful hearts long to gain a reputation among men. Where should we look? Where should we look for this stuff? Chapter 6 gives us illustrations, three of them, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. All those are spiritual disciplines. So we should look there more than anywhere else uh, of feeling this warning. But listen, that's not the only three areas that we should feel warned about. It's not. These are illustrations. The principle applies in hundreds of ways in the Christian life. The Apostle Paul applies the principle not just to giving, praying, and fasting. He applies it to preaching the gospel in Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that within the church in Philippi, there were some who displayed tremendous zeal for evangelism. But the problem is that they did it, the Apostle Paul says, just to make a name for themselves. Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, he says, Some preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Now think about how subtle this stuff is. They're preaching the right Jesus. They're preaching the right gospel. But they're doing it to make a name for themselves in a local church. Their, their motive is ambition. I want to be thought of well before men. I want that reputation as a gospel warrior. I mean, this is subtle stuff in the heart that the real gospel can come from an ambitious heart. And of course, Apostle Paul, he gives thanks that Christ is preached. Whether in pretense or in truth. He says, as long as Christ is preached, I can give thanks for that. They're giving the real gospel from the wrong motive. And really, any spiritual discipline, not just evangelism, any spiritual discipline can be hijacked for selfish ends. Can be weaponized to build up your own reputation. And so I want to roll through several, several of these examples. 
What about evangelism? I want you to think about how easy it is in the local church, how easy it is for this to roll across our tongue. Hey, I shared the gospel with so-and-so Tuesday. Pray for him. Hey, I shared the gospel with so-and-so, you know, two weeks ago. Pray for him. How easy is that? How easy is it? Now, is that wrong? Not necessarily. Follow-up question. Do you love to draw attention to your evangelism? Do you love to draw attention to it? Or to ask it in a different way. Do you ever share the gospel and not publish it to men? Do you ever share the gospel and leave it in the secret place where your Father in heaven sees it and you entrust that soul to your Father in heaven for that reward? You see, we can do this with everything. With everything. Scripture memory. One of the things that Jesus indicts the Pharisees for is something called phylacteries. Phylacteries. These were boxes that were worn upon the foreheads of pious Jews. And they had a strap around, you had a box there, and and, and the purpose was they stored these little uh, Torah scrolls, these little fragments of the Old Testament that they had memorized, and they're putting them uh, in these phylacteries, in these boxes. And Jesus indicts them for wearing your phylacteries before men. You want everybody to know how big your phylactery is. You know, I got the whole Torah shoved down in this thing. Not only do I memorize Bible, but I memorize mega Bible. That's the heart that Jesus is indicting when he calls attention to these phylacteries. But if we're honest, we have to watch out for that same heart. I don't know any Christian, I've never met any Christian, and certainly any Christian in this church, who is struggling with wearing a phylactery on your forehead. Okay? I'm sure somebody out there is. I've never met them. But our struggle is different, but it's the same heart. It's the heart that wants others to know, not only do I memorize Scripture, but I want you to know how much I memorize. I want to call attention in subtle ways to my righteousness. These are not little sins. These are not little sins. Jesus does not say, hey, beware, this is a little one. He's not saying that. These are real dangers along the way that when you begin to make concessions one after the other of living for the praise of men, it numbs your heart for the praise of God, living towards God, living for His glory alone. What about discipleship meetings? You feel a constant need to quantify to others just how much you are serving God. What did you do this week? Well, I met with so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. Well, brother, praise God. Oh, that was just Monday. Then Tuesday, I met with so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. And, of course, that's, you know, hyperbole. But you get the point. Do you often find the impulse to draw attention to your righteousness? When you meet with other Christians to do good for their souls, to encourage them in the Lord, do you ever leave it for the secret place? That your father saw it. That you can entrust it to your father. And that you're trusting him for the reward. What about hospitality? Does hospitality seem incomplete to you until you tell someone else that you did it? Or until the hospitality selfie makes it on to social media. It's not real hospitality till you get the picture in front of everybody you know. Or a different way. Do you feel it necessary to tell others that your family hosts folks twice a week? Every Tuesday, every Thursday night we have folks over. We'd love to see you soon, but we, but we have folks over every Tuesday and Thursday, and we're booked up for the next six weeks, so can we make an appointment for February? Man, look how godly. Do you see? The drawing attention to our righteousness. Hospitality is about serving other people. It's not supposed to be about serving our ego. It's supposed to be about serving others. Are we drawing attention to Christ that we draw in attention to ourselves. And, and, and Jesus is saying, beware, because Jesus would have us to turn from these things. As we're made aware of them by the Holy Spirit, 
He wants us to obey Him. He wants us to turn away from these things. He doesn't want us to be like those who live for the praise of man. What about family worship or personal spiritual disciplines? If you are honest, is it extremely important to you that others know your method? You've got to know how I seek God. You've got to know how I do it, how my family does it. It's really important to me that you know how I do it. Of course, of course, we want to help other Christians grow and learn to seek God and learn to lead their families. But do we also love to talk about ourselves and our methods? Is what the Father sees in secret enough for us or is it not? And even preachers have to beware. We love to give examples in our sermons about obedience. Obedience. That we want to illustrate the, the principle that, 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 that the Word of God calls us to real obedience. Boots on the ground in this world, obedience. And so preachers must beware that when they reach for illustrations of obedience to God in their sermons, what do you know? Just so happens that that obedient one in my illustration happens to be me. Subtle ways of drawing attention to our own righteousness. Preachers should never be the hero of their own sermons. Jesus Christ is the hero of the sermon. Preachers should not preach themselves. Preachers should preach Jesus Christ. Everybody has to be careful of this stuff. Everybody. And this principle applies in hundreds of other ways. Hundreds of other ways. Paul Washer tells a story of falling under conviction for this sin in his early days as a missionary in Peru. And he says that, that in those early days they, they had very little money and they lived very simple lives, him and the other missionaries that he worked with. And he noticed that he'd fallen in this pattern. And this is what convicted him. That he noticed that every time a friend would come over and comment about anything. Oh, that's a nice couch. Or, hey, I like that new shirt. Or, hey, that's a nice new Bible. He felt this deep and constant impulse to always explain how cheaply he got that thing. Oh, yeah, I got a good deal on it. Or even... The Lord blessed me with that for free. Praise God. You know, he, get, he gave me this for free. And he was convicted that he was doing this right here. That he was going out of his way to make sure everybody knows just how godly he is. This is subtle stuff that we got to be watchful. We got to beware. And the Holy Spirit convicted him that he was seeking the praise of men. And so this, this sin can happen in many different ways. Therefore, the remedy has to be watching over our hearts, evaluating our lives. Are we living for man? Are we living towards God? Are we living for the praise of man or for the glory of God? Or even to sharpen it even more, okay? Are we living for God's glory alone or... Are we for God's glory and a little bit of recognition for me too? God's glory alone is what we are to live for. Not to us. Not to us, O oh Lord. And I pray one of the things I want to trust the Holy Spirit to do, even in this sermon, is to apply this very specifically to your life. I want to trust God to do this. That, that if you're in sin... If you're doing this even in subtle ways, the Holy Spirit can convict you of your sin. And I say that because I don't want anybody in this room troubled by things that are not sin in your life. And I think that's really important, okay, that as we walk through these circumstances, these are not absolutes. These are not absolutes. Two people can perform the same act, the same thing. And one is acceptable to God because his heart's right. And the other is not acceptable to God because his heart is wrong. 
So I want to trust God. I encourage you to trust God to make this specific. When we pray, God, show me my sin. When we open ourselves up to be examined by the Spirit of God, God never says, I don't know if that's sin or not. The answer, He knows if it's sin, and He's able to reveal it in our lives. So trust Him to make it clear. But I do want to exhort us to this. Some of us need to stop talking about ourselves and be careful and intentional to not draw attention to our practicing of our righteousness. And so I want to share a principle with you that I think will help you in a hundred ways of how do we get this right. You know, it's not just like going through thousands of different examples. Just learn the principle. How do we get it right? And this is so helpful in Proverbs 27, verse 2. This is a principle for Christians to live by. It says this, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. And so, brothers and sisters, I know that we have deep desires that other people would know that we love Jesus Christ, that we love Him. I know we have those deep desires, and I want to encourage you that if we live by this principle, if we, don't, uh, if we let others praise us and not our own mouth, there are things that the Spirit of God is at work doing in our life that cannot be hidden. Jesus calls y'all, us, the church, the city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And so I want to exhort us to be content with what the Father sees in secret and live for his glory. And Jesus ends this verse with a warning in verse 1. He says this, For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he tells us, if we get this wrong, if we don't pay attention to what Jesus is saying, he says, you're not going to have any reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so I want you to notice the spiritual principle that's at work in this passage. And generally, typically, this is true. You get what you want. Or you say it this way, you get what you really want. Okay, You get what you really want. If you live a religious life for the praise of man... Here's the seductive part of this sin. Here's the, 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 the Delilah piece of this sin. Is that if you go this route of religious hypocrisy, typically and generally you will get what you want. You will be well thought of by others. You will gain a certain religious reputation. But here's the warning. That's all you get. You get that, but you get nothing else is what Jesus says. And so we have to learn that some in the church of Jesus Christ have gained a godly reputation, but they've done it through carefully crafted propaganda campaigns to suddenly draw attention to themselves for years. And they're thought of in a certain way, but it's not so what the Father sees and secret. And so Jesus warns you here, if you live towards man for the praise of man, that's all you'll get. You get no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But you take that statement and you flip it, and the opposite is true. So if you, if you live towards man, you get no reward from the Father, but flip it around. If you live for God's glory then you get the reward of your Father who is in heaven. And so this is the, the spiritual principle. You get what you really want. You live for the Father's reward, you get the Father's reward. You live for the praise of man, you get the praise of man. And one of the things that's surprising to us about language like this in the Bible Surprising because we know that we are saved not by our works, but because of Jesus Christ and Him alone. But the thing that surprises us is when the Bible lays out you know, language like this, where future rewards are actually held out as motives for Christian obedience. 
I mean, this is head-scratching stuff worthy to think about for a minute. When we think about why should we obey God, motives for sanctification, motives for holiness, you could say we should be holy because we're grateful to God, and you'd be exactly right. You, You could say we should be holy and obedient to God because it's our duty, and you would be exactly right. But one of the motives, and it's a biblical motive for holiness in Scripture, is that we should obey God because he promises us rewards. And this is not the first time that this happens in the Sermon on the Mount. Flip back, chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 12, Jesus tells the persecuted, he says this, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so if you're under persecution, and Jesus says rejoice and be glad, And you say, well, why should I do that? Jesus says, because you have a great reward in heaven. He's holding it out as a motive for us to obey God, to serve God in this world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus says it this way, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You're just like the world. Not a reward for that. But there is a reward for those who love their enemies. Those who love their enemies. And so we have rewards as motivation for Christian obedience. Just one other text here. I want to point out that even Jesus, in the days of his flesh, he fueled his motivation to obey his Father. He, He fueled it by the assurance of future Reward In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we read this about Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And so how's this for a motivation? To live only and solely for the glory of God. God said you're going to be rewarded by your Father who is in heaven. Now let's think about this a little more. On what basis... On what basis can Christian obedience be rewarded? And the answer to that has to be on the basis of grace, not on the basis of merit. On the basis of grace, not on the basis of merit. Our rewards that the Father is promising us are not wages being paid to us for our good deeds. They're gracious gifts from our Father who is in heaven. These are gracious gospel rewards. How do we know that? Because the rewards far exceed the quality of the deed done. Do you understand that? All of our good deeds are, are, are intertwined with disobedience and with sin. There's imperfection in everything we do. And yet we present this imperfect obedience to God. And He gives us the Father's reward. That's not wages paid. That's grace. That flows from the God of all grace. Thomas Watson, Puritan author, he tells us that that even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. That there is nothing uh, that we can present to God apart from the mediation of Jesus Christ that ever has any chance of being acceptable before God. One of the descriptions of the, the, the Levitical priest in the Old Covenant is their, one of their duties was to add incense to the holy sacrifices in Israel. So the Israelites would bring the holy sacrifice. Leviticus calls it the holy things. And the priest would add incense to the holy things. And this is, this is, this is Jesus, the true and better priest of all priests, our great high priest. He adds Sweet incense to our holy deeds, our deeds of obedience. And so these are gracious rewards. It is only because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus that God can overlook our imperfect obedience. And even more than that, that God can reward our imperfect obedience. It is because of His spotless, blameless, perfect righteousness. And so the rewards are gracious. That we're, to, we're to be motivated to obey God by gracious gospel rewards. Next question, what is the reward? 
What is it? Is it $10 million? What is the reward? Well, if you notice the principle at work in this passage, the reward is that you get what you want, that you get what you truly want. And that means that if you live for the Father's glory and pleasure, the reward is you get the Father's glory and pleasure. Or you could say it like this, God is the reward. He is our exceedingly great reward. What do Christians get more than they get anything else? We get God. It's the highest gift of the gospel. It's not just stuff. We get God. We have God and we get God. The greatest joy of heaven. The greatest joy of heaven is seeing the face of God. You take that away. What's good about heaven? It's hell apart from God. Greatest joy of heaven is God. He's the reward. He's the treasure in the field. Therefore, the greatest joy on the way to heaven is to live in His presence, to live for His glory, to ponder the path of your feet and know that your life is pleasing to your Father who is in heaven. To live quorum Deo, all of life before the face of God. It's the greatest joy in this life is that we get God now and we're going to get God forever. One of the ways that Jesus is described in the book of Acts is it, it says he set the Lord always before him. Think of that word picture. That, that, that Jesus' relationship with the Father, it was this conscience awareness of the Father's presence in everything that He did. He set the Lord always before Him. He lived all of His life as though He were standing in the very presence of God His Father because He was standing in the very presence of God His Father. And so Jesus is calling us to be like Him. This is the way of the cross. We sang this earlier. The wonderful cross of Jesus Christ, it bids me come and die and find that I might truly live. This is true life. Being liberated from the praise of man and set free to live for the glory of God alone. And so let's pay careful attention, careful attention to live in secret before our Father who is in heaven unconcerned about who we appear to be and only concerned about who we actually are in the presence of God. What a person is before God when no one else is around, that's who they are and nothing more. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for your word today. God, we know that you tell us that your word is breathed out by you and profitable. And Lord, we pray that you would cause your word to richly dwell within us, Lord. God, we ask that your word would bear fruit in our life. And God, we pray that you would draw us in to this secret place. Lord, I pray for the next several weeks, we as a local church, Lord, strengthen us in the secret place, Lord. Give us strong desires to serve you, even if no one else ever knows. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.